scripture reading, which comes this afternoon from Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 6, through chapter 6, verse 4. Both of the uh, scripture readings that we'll be reading this afternoon are connected with Lord's Day 15 and the beginning of Lord's Day 16, which speak of the death of Christ, uh, asking particularly why he died and what his death accomplished. So we'll look at Romans 5, verse 6 in the first place. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death... Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So far from Romans 5 and 6, let's also turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5.
2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So far, the reading of Scripture. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing from hymn 25. That's the uh, musical rendition of uh, Isaiah chapter 53, which foretells the suffering and death of Christ. Hymn 25, stanzas 1 and 2. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of Christian doctrine and the confession of this Christian church. And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 15, that's on page 529 of our books of praise. Lord's Day 15, there the question is, what do you confess when you say that He suffered? During all the time He lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by His suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, He has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did He suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so He freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes, thereby I am assured that He took upon Himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God." Continuing in Lord's Day 16, Why was it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was He buried? His burial testified that He had really died. 
Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. One more. Uh, What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to Him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon as we continue to work our way through the Apostles' Creed, uh, we are focusing especially on that line in the Creed that states that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Uh, As you noticed, our catechism devotes a great deal of attention to that one line, splitting it even into uh, two separate Lord's Days. Uh, But it's worth noting the the next statement there, he descended into hell, uh, is is on the next line. And so uh, we'll deal with that one next week, but take the whole of this line in the Creed uh, together. Now these these few words, uh, he suffered died and was buried, they land right at the heart of the Christian gospel, right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There he says, this is what the gospel's all about. This is the whole of the message that I am preaching to you. Uh, The suffering and death of Christ is, of course, not the the whole gospel. It has implications in many other areas of life, but it is the heart of the Christian gospel. Uh, Now, these short words in the creed, of course, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, uh, they do not even begin to capture the depth of of Christ's suffering and anguish. And the Catechism also highlights that for us, it's throughout all of his time on earth that Christ suffered. Uh, Christ's sufferings began long before the end of, of his life. Uh, In in fact, Paul writes in in his letter to the Philippians that even Jesus' act of entering this world was an act of humiliation, uh, an act of suffering, uh, self-denial. That the eternal God would, would enter, would leave the majesty of heaven and would enter this broken, you might say smelly, messy, ugly, sinful world, that he would do that and live among us, born in fact to a poor carpenter's family, uh, born in a cattle stall, and then laid in a manger out of which animals would eat. Uh, That is the beginning of a life of self-denial and suffering for our sake. Now, during the years of Christ's ministry, Christ experienced constant rejection, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, slander, uh, even betrayal. Uh, We sang about that even from from him at 25, from Isaiah 53, how how he was was misunderstood, he was rejected, uh, he was scorned by his own people. And he did all this 
in order to preach and to minister to a people who would ultimately demand for him to be crucified. Uh, That is Christ's life of self-denial and affliction. And now here in the Apostles' Creed, the the focus is on the very end of Christ's life. Uh, Particularly, it begins with the trial under Pontius Pilate. Uh, Now, the name Pontius Pilate is is there for several reasons. The Catechism mentions one, uh, that that Pontius Pilate is mentioned to show Jesus was condemned by a a genuine official judge. Uh, He was truly condemned. uh, And and Pilate, uh, for all of his evil, sinful motives, nonetheless did so as a a lawful authority uh, appointed by God. So his condemnation is God's condemnation. Uh, The the name of Pilate is also there in the creed, it's worth mentioning, uh, to put a date on the death of Christ. We saw last week that Christianity is is a historically grounded uh, religion. It's not just a philosophy, not just a way of life. It's a conviction about the truth. And, And the name Pontius Pilate also grounds the death of Christ in a date, a specific date. He was crucified under this governor. You can go look him up and find out when he reigned. Uh, and and here, uh, the, here too, the mere, the mere statement that Christ suffered under Pilate uh, does not even begin to capture what Christ endured. Uh, I don't often uh, choose to go into detail uh, about Christ's physical suffering and anguish, in part because uh, it's very hard to hear and, and, and not always helpful to hear. But we do need to know that Christ suffered, not just spiritually, but also uh, physically. Uh, he endured much for us. Uh, he endured much also relationally. He was betrayed by his disciples, by his closest friends, those whom he had chosen, whom he had been with uh, for the last three years. Uh, He was betrayed by his society, taken to a a court, uh, to a sham trial, to be falsely accused and then condemned. Uh, During that trial, uh, his his best friend, uh, Peter, uh, or at least one of his his closest friends, uh, who had sworn just the day before that he would stand with him to the very end of his life, uh, denied him three times with an oath. And all the rest of his disciples fled from him. So Christ was left utterly alone. And of course there was Christ's physical sufferings, being flogged, uh, being stripped naked, being tied, uh, being whipped with with whips that were meant to dehumanize and degrade people uh, that often killed uh, their their victims. Uh, And then of course being crucified. Crucifixion was invented by the Romans to be the the cruelest, most agonizing way uh, to to kill someone. Uh, During that whole process too, he was mocked. Uh, The crown of thorns was placed upon him. Uh, He he was called the the king of the Jews, which he was, but treated with with mockery. Uh, And and, and then he died in in his crucifixion. He carried his cross up to the the hill um, to the point where he fell from exhaustion and, and someone had to even carry the beam for him. Uh, and, and, and there he was, nailed to the cross, 
and crucified. Now, crucifixion was a slow death by, by asphyxiation, by, uh, by, by fail, failure to breathe. Uh, oftentimes, a person would hang there for days before, before dying. And it was meant to be, by design, the slowest and most painful way for a person to die. So the physical suffering of Christ is also beyond description, beyond imagination. Uh, And in addition to that is the spiritual agony of knowing that his father, his father from eternity, uh, has turned his back on him. Uh, Those of us who have had a a good, uh, loving father can can only imagine what it was like for Christ on the cross to endure being uh, shunned, uh, seeing his own father turn his back on him and pour out his anger upon him. Uh, how, how much more, uh, if, that, if that is unimaginably hard for us to imagine, how much more for Christ with His perfectly, perfect uh, heavenly Father. It's not for nothing that Christ cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Christ who had done no wrong whatsoever, who had obeyed the Father perfectly through all the sufferings and all the betrayals and all the mocking, had said, Father, your will be done, and submitted him to the Father's will to then nonetheless experience the Father's uh, anger is a spiritual agony far beyond our uh, imagination. All of that leads to the question and ought to lead to the question, why? Why did Christ go to the cross? Why did Christ suffer and die? And that's the question the Catechism really focuses our attention on that we also want then to think about. Uh, The answer that Scripture gives is very simple and it's unmistakable. It's for our sin. Christ died for our sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, to many of us, uh, hearing that is, is, of course, no surprise, having grown up in a Reformed church. Uh, we know that Christ died for our sins, but we ought to unpack that phrase a little bit to understand what that actually means. Uh, the Catechism asks the question this way, Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? And it answers by speaking of the justice The justice of God. It says, because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Uh, The point is, it's a point that there are many Christians that stumble over. It is, God is absolutely, utterly, perfectly just. Uh, That foundation was laid already way back in the beginning of the Catechism in uh, the first few Lord's Days where it speaks of God's justice against our sin, the reason why a place like hell uh, exists. Uh, And and it, it, it states that that God is perfectly just, meaning God will always repay everything with what it is due. Now, there are many people in our culture, and oftentimes even in Christianity, who take offense at this suggestion that, that God would punish and has to punish sin. 
Uh, and, and as a result, there are many people that, that interpret the death of Christ some other way. Uh, they feel that this, this view of Christ dying for our sins makes God vengeful and angry. Uh, and they don't like this idea of a God, so they, they provide alternate uh, explanations. Uh, and what all of these uh, come down to is a failure to understand and appreciate the justice of God. That God is perfectly just and must, not just uh, chooses to, but must punish our sin. Uh, this, is, this is something we, we understand. Uh, even as human beings, we get some concept of, of justice. We know that justice ought to be Upheld, uh, The need for justice is, is written even on our, our hearts. Uh, and it's written on our hearts because we're made in the image of God. And, and just as God is just, so we too are created with a sense of justice. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, God is the rock. His work is perfect for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. That's who God is. His justice is at the core of His uh, being. And that means He cannot let sin go without punishing it. Uh, Just as all of us understand on an earthly human level that that crime deserves punishment. Uh, We all understand that. Uh, Criminal cases deserve criminal penalties. Uh, We all get that. Uh, But but just as we understand that on this earthly human level, we must understand so God looks down on this earth with a perfect sense of justice. Our sense of justice may well be skewed. Uh, We ourselves being sinners, but God being holy looks down and looks down with perfect justice. He will punish sin. And this this is something we ought to treasure about God. It's not just a threat to us, it is also a comfort to us. Uh, it is precisely because God does not let sin go, because God does not just wink at it, uh, that He is to us a rock to whom we flee. In this unjust, broken, sinful, often evil world, we can turn to God who is perfectly just and know that there justice will be found. And that's why God is the rock to whom Christians flee when they experience persecution. When evil is perpetrated against them, they may turn to a God who is perfectly just. Uh, So this is a comfort to us when evil is committed against us, uh, but it is also a grave threat that stands against us on the level of us being sinners. Not only does God see the sin of others, but this perfect, just God also sees our sin. He sees our sin, and not only will He punish the sin of others that we regard as serious, He will also punish our sins that He regards as just as serious. Scripture is very clear, the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve in the garden uh, for, for something that to us may be so insignificant, eating a piece of, of fruit, yet it was forbidden by God and sinful to eat. God says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And when they did, God cursed them, declaring, from the dust you were taken, and to dust you shall return. God is just. The wages of sin is death, and, we, and sin will not survive in the presence of a righteous and holy God. 
this is often misunderstood by those who, who critique Christianity as saying, well, doesn't that make God vengeful? No, it doesn't make God vengeful. It makes God just. Uh, that's who he is. It's God's justice that brought Jesus Christ to the cross. It's God's justice, and the amazing thing is, it's also God's mercy. There in the cross, the justice of God saying, I will punish sin, comes together with the mercy of God saying, I will make a way for sinners. Uh, Christ went to the cross and to death to bear in His body and His soul the righteous judgment of God for our sins, so that you and I would not have to bear it ourselves. Now, I mentioned there are many who, who, because they struggle with that view of God as a just God, uh, they also struggle with this understanding of the cross. Uh, There are many who say, uh, Christ did not die to satisfy God's wrath. Christ died to show us an example of love. To show us an example of love. Uh, This is uh, formerly called the, the moral influence theory. Christ died to teach us what love looks like. Now, it's true, isn't it? Christ did die to teach us what love looks like. For example, Romans 5 tells us God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But that explanation cannot stand on its own. Christ died for a purpose, and that purpose is not just to show us his love, otherwise it's, it's an otherwise pointless death. I tell the catechism students this, you know, if I ran out to the street out there and got myself run over by a truck out of love for them, uh, would that be a good example of love? No, it wouldn't, because it's a pointless death. Uh, it would be an example of foolishness. Uh, but, at, but if I ran out there to save someone who was there on the road to snatch them out of harm's way and was killed in the process, that is an example of love. Uh, so, too, it's not sufficient to say Christ merely died as an example of love. He died to save us, and by doing so, it is the perfect example of love. Uh, there are others, too, who, who, who say Christ died not to satisfy the wrath of God, but only to defeat the power of, of death. This is called the, the, the ransom theory. And the idea is Christ essentially tricked death. Uh, Christ caused death to, to bite off more than it could chew so that uh, death could not hold him and death would thereby be, be overturned. Uh, as, as death swallows the immortal Son of God, death itself uh, is, is defeated. It's sort of like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where, where Aslan dies uh, in the place of Edmund and, and breaks the spell, of, of the, uh, uh, the spell uh, that, that reigned over the land. Uh, Christ, or, or Aslan did that to, to overturn that, that curse. And again, there's truth to that theory. Uh, by Christ's death, he did break the power of death. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But this too is only true because Christ's death was to satisfy the justice and righteousness of God. Uh, That's the reason why the curse of death was there in the first place. If it wasn't for God's justice... He could simply overturn the curse and remove the curse without needing the death of Christ. It's because of God's justice that the the curse of death needed to be overturned. 
so when we confess here in the Apostles' Creed uh, that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, uh, we need to recognize also why. And it is because uh, it, it is that Christ did this to satisfy the perfect justice and righteousness of God to deliver sinners like you and me from the judgment of hell and then to reconcile us to God. Uh, The death of Christ, as the Catechism says, is the only means by which that can happen. Uh, in addition to this, we confess that he was uh, th- that as part of his death he was crucified. He died on a cross, uh, and that was in fulfillment of the scriptures because to bear the curse uh, of God, uh, or excuse me, Christ Christ died bearing the curse of God as one who was accursed, uh, as the Catechism quotes also from Deuteronomy twenty one: a hanged man or a, a crucified man is cursed. By God. As Paul also says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of life, uh, excuse me, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Uh, the act of uh, this was an ancient practice of hanging someone, uh, usually by impaling, uh, hanging someone on a tree or a pole. And it was a visual way of saying in that day uh, that this person hangs between heaven and earth. They are rejected by earth and they are uh, rejected by heaven. So they hang in between. So Christ also then did for us. In addition to this, Christ was buried. And now the only thing the Catechism says about Christ's burial is that it proves his, his death, uh, which is certainly true. But we should also recognize that this too was a fulfillment of the curse. Uh, the curse in Genesis was, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Christ was laid in the dust uh, for our sake, fulfilling the curse for us uh, from beginning to end. The whole of the curse finds its fulfillment in the death and and burial of Christ. Uh, So we say Christ suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried in order to satisfy God's justice and to be the curse in our place. Uh, Formerly, uh, this, this understanding of the cross that, that is the Reformed understanding that has gone back to the very beginning of the early church, this, this understanding is called formally penal substitutionary atonement. There's your $20 word. Uh, and and it, it very simply means this. Penal means punishment. His death was, was a punishment. Atonement means his death made things right between us and God. And substitutionary, I want to spend some time on that, uh, word, but it simply means he died in our place as our substitute. These three things, this penal substitutionary atonement, should always be central to our understanding of the cross. It, it must remain central to our idea of why Christ came and what Christ died for. It, it is quite amazing uh, that there are many Christians, many churches even, uh, who, who, who accept Christ as, as a good moral teacher or as an example of love, but do not agree with the doctrine of hell or the wrath of God. 
Without the doctrine of hell and without the wrath of God, you cannot have the death of Christ. It does not make sense. Uh, You cannot have it both ways. If Christ came to die, he came to die for the wrath of God to deliver us from it. That's the only Jesus there is. That's the only gospel that's taught in Scripture. Now, having said that, I want to make uh, one important clarification in in this doctrine, and this comes back to this word uh, substitute. Uh, There are many people who object to this idea because they say, why should one righteous man die in the place of, uh, why should a righteous man die in the place of a sinner? Is that truly just? Uh, Is is God really being uh, fair by, by doing that? Uh, this, is, this is grounded in part in a wrong idea of what this substitution is. Uh, it's a little bit nuanced, but this is important to understand because it has implications not just for his death, but also for Christ's resurrection. Uh, Christ is our substitute. That is, that is certainly true. He died in our place. Uh, he was bound and whipped so that you would not have to be bound and whipped. Uh, his hands were nailed to the cross so that our hands did not have to be. This is what Martin Luther calls the the great exchange, that God poured out His wrath on Jesus so that we could be spared. Uh, As Isaiah 53 also says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You see that substitution there. Uh, But when we think of Christ as our substitute, uh, we should recognize there's more going on than just a simple one-for-one exchange. Uh, There's different kinds of substitutes. I'll give an example. Uh, If you're playing hockey and you get injured, uh, someone else will come in as your substitute. Uh, They're there in your place, but you're not there anymore. Uh, So if they shoot and score... That's their shot and their score, not yours. Uh, It's a simple substitute. But there's also a different sort of substitution that is representational, where someone is there on your behalf, in your place, standing for you. Uh, This is the sort of thing that happens when our elected MP goes to Parliament. Uh, They're not just there in our place, though they certainly are that, uh, but they also speak on our behalf. Uh, They're there representing us. Now, sometimes they don't do that well, but you get the point. Uh, In in that sort of substitution, uh, yes, they are there in our place, but in a sense, we are there with them. Uh, We stand there uh, with them. Uh, Their words are our words. Their actions are our actions because they do them on our behalf. That's the sense in which we speak when we talk of Christ as a substitute. Uh, He is a substitute who represents us. Uh, He is, uh, by God's will, our covenant head. Uh, And and so it's not just a a stranger, a righteous stranger, dying for an unrighteous stranger. It's much more like a father dying on behalf of his children. Uh, There's a relationship there and a representation that takes place there. Uh, He did not just go to to the cross in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Uh, He went to the cross in our place as our representative such that... His death is also our death. We may rightly say, as Paul does, 
I have died with Christ. Uh, I was there, so to speak, on the cross. Now, it may sound like a very subtle distinction, uh, but it's very important for rightly understanding the death of Christ. Uh, And it it answers the objection that many have against the justice of God. It's not just a stranger who died in our place. It is our Father, our covenant head, who died in our place. the, the, the charge that many lay against God of, of being unjust for punishing an innocent man in the place of, of the wicked fails to grasp how that innocent man is related to those wicked men as their covenant head. It was Christ standing up as, 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 you might say, the manliest of men who takes responsibility for his people and then goes to the cross on their behalf. Uh, This also means then that we remain united with Christ in his death as well as in his burial and then in his resurrection, uh, which we'll talk about uh, in, in the future weeks. Uh, so, so 2 Corinthians 5, which we read together, uh, builds upon this understanding of Christ as our uh, representative. Uh, Christ, uh, Paul says in, in chapter 5, verse 14, The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. So there's your substitution. But then he goes on to say, Therefore, all have died. We died with Christ. It's not just He died so we didn't have to. He died so that His death might be our death. Uh, as Christ took our sin on Himself and went to the cross with it, He died and we died with Him. Uh, yes, not one of our hands were actually nailed to that cross. And yet, all of us who belong to Christ were there with Him, just as we who belong to Adam were there with Him when he fell. Uh, again, Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, very importantly, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, do you hear the logic that, that Paul is working with there? If, if all Christ was was a simple substitute like that, that hockey player, if all that he was was a substitute, then we might say he died, but we didn't. Uh, but that's not what happened as Paul understands the cross. It is rather Christ died to sin there on the cross, and we who by God's mercy belong to him, we died there with him so that in him, with him, we might also become the righteousness of God. Uh, we're united to him in his death, and we're united to him in his resurrection. Uh, Here it again in, in Galatians 2, uh, verse 20. Uh, Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I was there on the cross with him. It's not just Christ has been crucified for me, though that's certainly true, uh, but I've been crucified with Christ. In Christ, I was there on the cross. Uh, Just because my head, my father, my older brother, my representative was there, and he counts for me. I was there with him. And what does that mean? Paul goes on to say, he says, Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ 
who lives in me. Uh, Why? Because I died. That old me died. It's no longer that guy who lives. But now it is the new me in Christ who lives. As Christ rose from the dead, so a new me also rose with him. I am united with him. Uh, And he goes on to say, And and so the life I I now live... In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The whole of my identity, in other words, is tied up with the risen Christ. The whole of my old identity died with, the Christ, with Christ when he died. A new me comes into being in his resurrection. Uh, you can see then how this, this understanding of substitution really matters when you get to the resurrection. Uh, because if you think of Christ merely as a substitute, he, he took the punishment so I didn't have to, uh, then you might, uh, you might be able to understand the, the death of Christ at some level, but then you're left with the question, why did Christ actually need to rise? You know, the, the punishment was paid. The, the, the curse was satisfied. Why then did he need to rise? Uh, what difference does it make to me if a stranger goes to jail on my behalf? I'm free. That's, that should be the, the end of it. Uh, but, the, but the scriptural reason for why did the resurrection, uh, why the resurrection matters is because Christ's resurrection is my resurrection. Because I've been united with him, so that just as he comes out of the grave, so also do I. I am united with him both in his death and in his resurrection. Uh, So, brothers and sisters, understand this well. When Christ died on the cross, you died with him. The old you is dead. A new you has come into being. Uh, even Even though you were not yet born... For, for 2,000 years, you would not yet be born, yet you were counted by God there on the cross with Christ. As God saw it, you were there with Him. Uh, just as when Adam, our first head, fell into sin, so when Christ, our new covenant head, died to sin, you died with Him so that a new you could rise with Him as well. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know what amazing news this is for uh, your life as a Christian. You're dead to sin. And there's a new you who's alive to righteousness. Uh, If you feel discouraged because you can't beat sin in your life, uh, because your your flesh, your your body, your mind, your emotions, all of that is entailed in in the biblical word flesh, uh, your, your flesh may still be corrupted by sin, but you, you have died to sin, and you are no longer ruled by sin, because that man's dead, and the Spirit of Christ now lives in you. Uh, any, any real progress in the fight against sin has to start there. It has to start in the knowledge that I died and I'm a new person. Uh, the sins that I do still commit, they are not the me that will last into eternity. Uh, yes, I must still confess those. Yes, they are still my sins. I must deal with them. I must still wage war against them. But I get to do that knowing that the man who does those sins is not me, is not the me that goes on into eternity. That's my flesh. That's uh, the, the person that I, I was by nature. But that man is dead and a new me is alive. 
Uh, So the death of Christ on the cross then uh, provides for us the forgiveness of our sins uh, because the wages of sin have been satisfied in the death uh, of Christ. Uh, The cross of Christ gives us the death to sin so that the resurrection may begin, so that the new person may begin to walk, as Paul says, in newness of life. Uh, That's the starting point. It must be the starting point and the foundation for the Christian life. Uh, One final point on which we'll close. Because we are united to Christ in his suffering and his death and his resurrection, uh, we are also called then to share in Christ's sufferings while here on earth. Uh, Just as Christ was rejected and afflicted, uh, so we, because we are united to him, may well expect to be uh, rejected and afflicted. Uh, The scriptures often speak in this way of us sharing in Christ's sufferings, uh, bearing, as Paul says, the marks of his affliction on our bodies, uh, or as, as he says in Colossians, filling up in our bodies what is still lacking uh, in the full measure of his afflictions. It's recognizing as long as we're here on earth, we are called to walk the path that Christ our Savior has walked before us and that he walks with us, which means we will experience affliction as those united with him. And what this means for us then is we are to have the heart of Christ uh, as we also go out into the world. The same heart that led Christ to come into this world should be our heart also as we go out to the world around us. Uh, We give testimony as Christ did to the truth of the gospel and we bear the afflictions that come as a result. We lay our lives down as Christ did for the glory of God and for the salvation of this world. Uh, There is much suffering entailed in being a disciple of Christ. Uh, In many respects, uh, suffering as Christ suffered is how we prove ourselves to be His disciples. Uh, Even if we don't bear His afflictions in our physical bodies, uh, we should certainly be bearing them on our hearts crying out to God every day on behalf, of, uh, on behalf of those Christians who are suffering around this world. We, we sympathize with them. We cry out to God with them. We suffer with them as Christ suffered for us. Uh, even if we're not called to suffer in the exact same way that they do, uh, we, we as Christians have the willingness to be counted with them as Christ counted himself with us. Uh, So knowing then what Christ has suffered, and knowing what so many Christians still suffer, we are called to participate in their sufferings by lifting up their cause before the throne of God every day, uh, with groans, with cries to God to bring his justice to this world. Uh, That's the heart of Christ, bearing the afflictions of those who belong to him. As the author of Hebrews also commands us, he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And and by that reference to the body, he's not just talking about your physical bodies. He's saying you with them are part of the body of Christ. if, If one part of the body is afflicted, the whole body suffers. 
Uh, so in our lives too, uh, though we don't all suffer in the same way, uh, we certainly embrace the hardship and affliction that comes with being a disciple of Christ. There's that, that constant, never-ending battle against our sin. Uh, there's the suffering that we have of, of laying down our lives uh, for our fellow Christians, just giving of our time, our strength, our energy, our, our resources, impoverishing, our, impoverishing ourselves uh, as we lay ourselves out for the benefit of others, for the benefit of Christ's body. Uh, there are the challenges and, and frustrations of raising children in the fear of the Lord that comes with its battles, that comes with its afflictions. Uh, but that's what Christ has done for us, so that's what we do as united with Him. Uh, there is the difficult and, and, and really never-ending task of, of visiting the weak and, and weeping with those who weep, uh, even as we rejoice with those who rejoice. We share in the pain of those who are hurting in our midst. And we as a church ought to, to uh, demonstrate this uh, within this body. When one suffers, all suffer together. Uh, we, we weep, we share in the pain of those who hurt here in our midst. So because Christ suffered and died for us, and we died with Him, so we also gladly bear His sufferings in our own body, knowing this is what you expect as one united to Christ. Uh, so, brothers and sisters, know that this, this is the love of God for you. That Christ counted himself with you and became your covenant head, became the second Adam for you. That you are counted with him and he endured for your sake the worst imaginable suffering to deliver you from the wrath of God and to bring you to new life on the other side. So, put your sin to death because it's already died on the cross, and give thanks to God for the redemption that you've obtained in Christ. And then follow. Follow in the footsteps of Christ to whom we are united. Don't be afraid to bear the marks of His suffering on your body also. It is suffering that, just like with our head, it's suffering that leads to glory. Amen. Let's sing in response from... uh, from hymn 25, once again, singing now stanzas 3, 4, and 7. <clears throat>